Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It's wonderful to be here. I mean, it's wonderful to be here just to have traveled so far to come to you, to be with my great friend Steve, to see new folk and, and old that I've known, and to come to, to this astonishingly beautiful part of the world. And it's good, most good of all, to come to you on this day of all days, for us to be gathered on this great feast of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, Luke tells us, they were all together in one place. Oh, hallelujah and thanks be to God. Uh, I found it incredibly difficult to be separated. I know, like, I've done Zoom church, I've set it up. When the thing started, I had to suddenly, you know, having been a f f fully embodied, and I have to say slightly more than full-bodied chaplain amongst my students at Cambridge, I suddenly had to sort of, you know, become cyber chaplain. You know, and everything was flattened and screened out, you know. Um, and I did it. And I did it in love and I did it in faith, but I couldn't wait for the moment when we could live a, an embodied three-dimensional life together. And today, the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. It's about that part of the dynamic of our being church where we need each other. We can't, Christianity is not a private, privatized, or even privatizable religion. It's not the alone with the alone. It's not, you know, a tiny little subjective thing for me alone. It's a great, glorious, public truth that gathers and binds us together and which needs to be proclaimed in every corner of the earth in order to unite God's scattered and fallen humanity once more in his son as we were once all gathered in the first Adam. Let us be gathered in the second. And that's why the gift is given at Pentecost of language and translation. So it's entirely right and proper that at last we can be all together in one place. Now, it's a dramatic and glorious sending of the Spirit. There suddenly came from heaven the sound, as it were, of a rushing wind and um, the how filled the house they were sitting. We have two of the great symbols of the Spirit there straight away, the, the mighty wind, the, the, the air, the breath, and we have the flames. But I have heard some Pentecost sermons and some accounts of the Spirit that seem to suggest that this is a completely new thing, that there's nothing about the Spirit anywhere else, and then suddenly there's this great explosion of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Indeed, I've, um, I've seen it taken even further than that. I've seen people give an overview of the overarching history of the, the Bible and the church that goes something like this. In the Old Testament, it's all about God the Father. And that's all there is. There's God the Father. That's the age of God the Father. And then, ha hooray, after Advent, you know, Jesus is born, and we're introduced to God the Son. And so we know all about Jesus and God the Son. And that runs from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel up to the end of Luke. <laughs> and then comes the day of Pentecost, and we have the age of the Spirit. And now we're all Spirit-filled, and we're going to be... As though... There was some sort of chronological sequence, as though there was some kind of chronological development in God, as though the God had sat for the aeons and ages up in heaven as just the Father, and then sort of, you know, 
on the Feast of the Annunciation, you know, on the 25th of March or whatever, back in the day, went, oh, what about the sun, you know? And then, as though nobody had heard of the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> as you've been singing in the Lorica, as you've been singing in that great benediction, God is, was, always will be this glorious communion of persons in love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let's just briefly look back, since today is the day of the Spirit, at the role of the Spirit leading up to this great outpouring uh, on, on the church, this breathing of life into us as a, as a corporate body, all together in one place. Well, we can go right back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form uh, uh, and, and, and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. The Spirit of God, and then God said, let there be light. So the Spirit is right there at the creation, and so is the Son. He is the eternal Word, the eternally begotten. When God says, let there be light, that's the Father speaking in and through the Logos, the Word that in whom and through whom all things were made. The entire glorious and undivided Holy Trinity, that communion of persons in love, is there from the beginning. There's the Spirit. And that's the image that we're made in. That's a big cosmic sending of the Spirit, isn't it? The Spirit's there as the entire cosmos is created. But then the Spirit comes in a little bit later in Genesis. When God takes that human being and makes the first person, and makes the first person out of the, uh, the red earth, the clay of the ground, yeah? That's what Adam means. It means red earth. And that's a very much more personal, isn't it? God can make light and cosmos and the sun and the moon just by saying it. But God wants to do something much more intimate and personal with us much more hands-on. You might even say he rolls up his sleeves and gets his hands dirty, if I can use that analogy. But it's still just a piece of clay until Genesis tells us that God breathed into that first person, the breath of God, and the Adam became a living being. Now, you know the word, the Hebrew word ruach, means breath, air, wind, spirit. The Greek word pneuma that comes in there means breath, air, wind, spirit. Even the Latin word spiritus means both, right? We've split these two things up. So now we have these two different words, don't we? We have inspiration. Can you hear the spirit bit in inspiration? And we have respiration. But in, the, in those first glorious days of unity, every respiration was inspiration. Every breath. When Jesus speaks of the spirit to Nicodemus, and we translate it from the Greek in John. You hear the sound of the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof. You know not whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit and water. Notice he's referring to the two things that are there at the beginning of the cosmos, the Spirit. Now, we translate that. You hear the sound of the wind, the sound thereof. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Somebody in the 16th century, making that King James Bible, had to make a decision as to when Jesus was being theological and when he was being meteorological, right? Which bit is the respiration? Which, so they said it's when, but the same word is in the Greek, the pneuma. You could translate that, the spirit blows wherever it likes. 
You hear the sound of the Spirit, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is of all of us who are born before the wind. Yeah? These things for Jesus and for that are interchangeable because the wind was always his breath. God is beyond all things, but he also breathes into us. So I just want to say the Spirit was there cosmically at the beginning and intimately when we were breathed into. And we then see all kinds of signs of the Spirit and, and givings and gifts of the Spirit. We see the story of Elijah, I want a double helping of your Spirit, so on, right the way through the Old Testament. But when we come, as it were, in the resurrection of Jesus to the new creation, we see the, a return of the Spirit as the Creator Spirit in two astonishing ways. In Genesis, we start with the cosmic, and having created the cosmos, we move to the personal. The spirit on the water, the intimate spirit breathed in by God. Now this is interesting. When God begins in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to make the new creation, he's already, we've already got the old. The old is like the, the eggshell out of which the new is going to be born. He doesn't start the new kingdom, the creation of the kingdom, at a cosmic level. It begins with the person, the person of Jesus. It becomes personal. The kingdom comes because you and I are personally called into Christ and we the Spirit. And from that is going to come the great cosmic change. So look at the two comings of the Spirit in the New Testament. In the Old, it's cosmic, then personal. The first coming of the Spirit, the first saying of receive the Holy Spirit, is not the day of Pentecost. It's Easter Day, when they're in that upper room when they're all full of fear and they've locked the doors for fear and suddenly Jesus is in their midst and he says, peace be unto you. And then what does he do? He breathes on them. Exactly that Genesis moment. He personally, I'm going to make you a new living being. Receive the Holy Spirit. You know, it's a strange day, Holy Saturday, between the death of Jesus and his resurrection on the Sunday. I once heard, heard it said that it's the day when earth holds her breath, we all hold our breath. And I thought about that. I thought, no, that's not quite true. It's not us holding our breath. It's heaven holding our breath. Remember what Jesus said from the cross? Those last words, Father, into your hands receive my spirit. That breath that God breathed into all of humanity, our breath of life, is breathed back to God. And all through Holy Saturday, as he lies in the tomb, heaven holds the breath of earth so that it can begin again, but this time not with the mere bios life of our biology, but with the Zoe life, the life that is life. And then, oh, he breathes into us. We receive the spirit. Sins are forgiven. Then it's those group of people who have been personally transformed by an intimate encounter with the risen Jesus, as I'm sure many, many here have, who are gathered together. Now, he says, okay, now we're going to do the cosmic thing. Now we're not just going to keep this private. This isn't just going to be an intimate exchange in a house. Now I'm going to come like a mighty rushing wind, and I'm going to breathe on you, and I'm going to send you out, and this is going to transform the world. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. And so there's already a long story of the Spirit. And if you look back on that long story of the Spirit, you'll see that there are three 
of the, the, the you know the ancient world thought of the of the whole cosmos and each human person as being composed of four elements and those were uh, earth air water and fire and it sort of makes sense in its own way so I was reflecting on this passage uh, when I was coming to write my poetry for the um, Sounding the Seasons book. And it suddenly occurred to me that obviously air is air and wind and breath. Air is a clear symbol of the spirit. It's actually what the word means. But then flowing water is there always with the spirit. The spirit on the water, the spirit on the waters of our baptism, the spirit understood as the welling stream that comes and refreshes us, the stream that makes glad the city of God, the fountain rising within us. Water is clearly a symbol of the spirit. Fire is clearly a symbol of the spirit. The, the spirit of the Lord down there full on the burning bush, the, 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 um, the tongues of flame. So I thought, oh, well, that's three out of four ain't bad, you know. Well, I, I must just quickly run through my Bible again and all my spirit references. There's got to be an earth warning somewhere. And there's nothing, never under any circumstances, is the spirit compared with earth. And I'm like, I'm a bit of a completist, you know, I like the full set. So I'm going, like, what happened to that? Where is that? And then I must be a bear of very little brain, as Winnie the Pooh says, <laughs> because I suddenly occurred to me, ah, oh, duh, of course, earth is the name for all of us. Adam, the man of clay. And just as he couldn't become a full living being until he received the spirit and the clay is moistened with the water and the divine spark, all those other three elements had to go into the new creation to make the Adam uh, a fully living being. So it is with us. We can't just be earth. I mean, I love the medical sciences and the biological sciences and the molecular sciences. I love them all. I, you know, I'm really on the side of science. Uh, you know, I think it's glorious that we've been given minds to things. But it never, it's never the full account. And if we just describe our life by, by saying, what is this clay that we're made of and how many enzymes has it got and how do they unwind, we're completely missing the point. We might as well still be lying on the earth. It's the breath of the Spirit, the fire of the Spirit, the moistening fountain of the Spirit, which is not susceptible, that actually makes us fully human. And we're living in a culture that's really interested in the earth and knows nothing of the Spirit. That's why we have good news for it. So, ah, now we become the new creation when the Spirit, which is the other three elements, is poured into the fourth one. And then we are really fully who we are. So those were themes, but there's one last theme <clears throat> for, for the, uh, the day of Pentecost, you might say the most blindingly obvious one that I think needs to be mentioned. And that is the emphasis on translation. It's not simply that we receive the Spirit and become the fully human person, but this particular gift of translation that they all heard uh, in their own native language, all those people. Um, in the earlier King James Bible, it speaks of our mother tongues. In fact, native, of course, means that because native comes from the word nativity. And um, if you are born in a place, then you are a native. And, of course, it is in the great nativity of God onto earth that he, as it were, becomes native to our place. He becomes one of us. The transcendent becomes indigenous, if you like. And it's really part of us and our story. And wants, therefore, to lift us up to become part of heaven and heaven's story. In fact, one of the great translators of uh, the Bible 
the man who was most, who was actually fully in charge of the King James Version, Lancelot Andrews, who was there at the 1604 conference in Hampton Court when King James said we need a new translation and was there in 1611 when it was published. The man who said, I will not pass a single line of this translation unless it's read aloud to me because people need to hear it and hear how it sounds. So, he's, so I, I, want, I was called upon once by the Society for the Study of Biblical Literature to write a paper for a book on the 400th anniversary of the, of the King James Bible. And I thought, since I'd studied Lancelot Andrews, and he's a hero of mine, that I, and we have all his Pentecost sermons. So I thought, you know, one rainy afternoon, I'm in Cambridge, so I could just go and find the original, you know, uh, 17th century volume. Why don't I just read all his Pentecost sermons from 1604 to 1611 while he's working on this translation. And I bet, I bet somebody's saying, gee, I wish God would do, make it this easy for me. <laughs> I wonder if he's got anything to say about translation itself. Well, does he ever? It turns out that he has a whole theology of translation. And I'll just very briefly tell you what he says. He says, he quotes St. Augustine and others as saying that the, the great miracle and blessing of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, answers and undoes and reverses the curse of Babel. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Everybody spoke one language, they were by their own arrogance building their tower up to heaven. The, the human, human arrogance is rebuked, God, God comes down and divides their tongues, right? But thanks be to God, he... he, he, he he undoes that harm by giving it Pentecost when everybody understands everybody else. So Andrews quotes this, and then he says this. Actually, that's not quite true. Yes, indeed, the curse becomes a blessing, but it's not a reversal. He says, if God had wanted to reverse Babel, he could have done a miracle through the Holy Spirit where all those Medes and Parthians and Elamites and dwellers in Pontius and Phrygia and all that, they would have all suddenly understood classical Hebrew. Like they would have had this, and it would have been saying, this is the holy language, this is the holy... God could have created a church then and there which was monoglot, monocultural, had no place for diversity, wasn't interested in the funny, quirky things your grandmother used to say to you or your native, or the beauties of your accent or dialect or your lovely place names. It could have just said, forget all that, now you belong to this big one culture. Emphatically, God did not do that. On the contrary, he loved every single little language. Look at, the, look at what the Holy Spirit does in letting Luke have the long list of nays of Phrygia and Pontius and the parts of this. You know, he'd have to redo it now, wouldn't he? If, if Luke was writing now, he'd say they were gathered from Phrygia and Pontius and Egypt and Arabia and, and Vancouver and Seattle and Washington. And there was even a cranky little poet from the Shire. You know, they'd be like, God loves diversity and particularity. So Andrew's in his sermon, in the very one that he preached the year he got the commission to make the translation, he said... Of course there were diverse tongues. And then he says this, I quote him directly, there are not tongues enough to praise the Lord. God would invent whole new languages just so that we could have the joy of praising him in those. Like Tolkien took that seriously and started writing Elvish, you know. <laughs> That's kind of, but do you see, now what, what, what Andrew says is, but surely we might lose something in translation. On the contrary, he says, you gain and this is what he says, God is not afraid of translation. Why? 
because God, to save us, made the greatest translation of all. When the word, hologos, was made flesh. Not just translated out of Greek into English, but translated out of heaven into earth. And God translates himself into flesh. And the Hebrew word for flesh, says Andrews, who's working on the Old Testament translation, also means good news. <laughs> it's gospel. God translates himself into flesh so that at the end all of our flesh can be translated into the joy of heaven. Because translated also means transformed or transfigured. So God is not afraid of translation. He loves it. And he wants every part of his gospel to be translated not into a just into a language you understand, but to be translated into flesh, your flesh, your life, all the particularities of what you do. That's what we're going to be doing these next three days. We're going to talk about faith and art. We're going to talk about faith and technology. We're going to take about, we'll talk about faith and work. And that's entirely a Pentecostal act. We are translating what's in this gorgeous book and in our hearts and faith into the languages of those discourse. And nothing is lost but rather something is gained. So let that translation continue and let it be blessed as all of the gospel is translated over the course of your life into all of who you are and through you, your personal in flesh translation of what it is to be a Christian, other people catch that fire and the tongues of flame appear over them too. May it be so. Amen. Now, I wrote a poem that kind of Riffs on all of that. This is where I, I have to confess, you know, I do go on a bit, and, and when I read the sonnet to once to, my, to my, um, my own church after a sermon like this, they said, Malcolm, why didn't you tell us you could do it in just 14 lines? <laughs> <laughs> so now you get the 14-line executive summary. But, uh, and then I'm going to bring Steve up again. So let me, let me conclude, really, with this poem almost as a prayer, Pentecost. Today we feel the wind beneath our wings, Today, the hidden fountain flows and plays. Today, the church draws breath at last and sings as every flame becomes a tongue of praise. This is the feast of fire, air, and water, poured out and breathed and kindled into earth. The earth herself awakens to her maker, translated out of death and into birth. Today, the right words come in their right order, and every word spells freedom and release. Today, the gospel crosses every border. All tongues are loosened by the Prince of Peace. Today, the lost are found in his translation, whose mother tongue is love in every nation.